Well, good morning. I'd like you to join me in the book of James, first chapter. The noted English writer G.K. Chesterton wisely said, I believe in getting into hot water. I think it keeps you clean. Have you been in hot water lately? Have you experienced the heat of trials in your life? Our son Brandon is 11. He doesn't believe in getting into hot water. And we can tell. Sometimes he comes and gives us a hug and we go, Ugh, you stink. You need to get in some hot water. We have to make him get in the hot water. That's what good parents do. And that's what God does with us sometimes. And that's what James is talking about here as he opens his letter. In chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you get in hot water. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Just as hot water has a purpose, trials have a purpose. God allows them in our life in order to test us for the sake of approval in order to produce maturity, in order to, to develop our character, in order to keep us clean, in order to put steel in our otherwise fragile lives, in order to make us complete, in order to make us more like Jesus. Classic example of this principle that James is trying to teach us is seen in the life of Job. And I want you to take your Bibles and go back to Job. In fact, James mentions Job as an example of endurance in chapter 5 and verse 11. When you come back to the book of Job, in the introduction to the book, we learn some things about Job Job chapter 1 and verse 1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. He was a godly man. Verse 2 says he had seven sons and three daughters born to him. So he was a godly man. He had a large family. He had ten kids. Verse 3 says, his possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. He had great wealth. And then notice the end of verse 3. It says, and that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. He had great influence. Literally, that phrase says, he was the heaviest man in the East. We would say today, he carried a lot of weight. He had a lot of influence. 
He was godly, blessed with a large family, had great wealth and great influence. You say, well, if a guy had all that going for him, it would be easy to serve the Lord. Well, that's what Satan says in verses 9 and 10. He comes to God and says, you've put a hedge around Job. You've made his life life easy. And the only reason he follows you is because you've blessed him so much. And then he says in verse 11, if you test him, he'll flunk. Take away the blessings, take away the goodies, and he'll flunk. And so God tested Job. And in verses 13 to 19, we're told it happened in one day. Job wakes up on one day. And he says, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And we're told that one of his servants came up to Job in verses 14 and 15 and says, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding and the Sabians came and stole the animals and killed all the servants and I'm the only one who survived and I came right here to tell you. And in verse 16, another servant shows up while that one is still talking and says, fire came out of heaven and consumed all the sheep and all the servants and I'm the only one who survived and I came right here to tell you. And while he was still talking, another servant came up, verse 17, and said the camels were out grazing and the Chaldeans came and they stole the camels and they killed all the servants and I'm the only one who escaped and I came here to tell you. And while he's still talking, another servant comes up and says, all your sons and daughters, all ten of them, were in your oldest son's house. And a great wind came. A tornado came. Hit the house, knocked it down, and killed them all. And I came here to tell you. Now, if you think you have trials in your life, this is a trial. How does Job respond? Does he blame the Sabians? Does he blame the Chaldeans? Does he blame the servants? Does he blame God? What does he do? Does he whine and scream and yell and panic? Verse 20 says he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell to the ground, and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. That's a great perspective. I came into this world naked, and I'm going to go out naked. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What's he saying? I came in with empty hands. I'm going to go out with empty hands. Whatever the Lord gave me was a gift from the Lord. It wasn't mine. And so if the Lord has taken it back... Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. Now, if there's one positive thing we could say at this point in time, we would say, well, at least he's still got his health. Look at chapter 2. Verse 3, God brings up Job 
to Satan. Says, guess what? He passed the test. He kept his integrity through losing everything. And Satan says in verses 4 and 5, if you'll touch his body, skin for skin, you, you bring affliction on his flesh and his bone, and he'll curse you. He'll, you. You test him in that area, and he'll flunk the test. And so look at verses 7 and 8. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Job got boils all over his body, from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. Boils. Eruptions all over his body. They were inflamed. They were oozing with pus. And apparently they were accompanied by intense itching. But they were too disgusting to even touch. So he didn't scratch himself. He took a potsherd, which is a broken piece of pottery, and would use that to scrape the itching, inflamed boils on his body. Job chapter 7 and verse 5 says there were worms, there were maggots crawling in the boils. Chapter 7 and verse 4 says he couldn't sleep at night. He tossed and turned all night. And when he did get to sleep, chapter 7 and verse 14 says he had terrifying nightmares. Chapter 30 and verse 30 says his skin eventually turned black. And his body had a fever that went all the way down to his bones. Now that's an extreme trial. He lost his possessions, he lost his family, and he lost his health. Now one of the things we look for when we go through trials is some encouragement from the people around us. What kind of encouragement did Job get? If you look in chapter 2 and verse 9, his wife turns to him and says, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. That's real encouraging. Going through the worst trial of my whole life and my wife is telling me to curse God and die. She's only mentioned one other time in Scripture. In Job 19, 17, Job says, My breath is offensive to my wife. He had to be wondering why God took everything and left her. In chapter 2, verse 11, his three best friends show up. Job is so broken and so diseased, it says they didn't even recognize him. And when they saw Job, they broke out in tears and they began to weep for him. And in verse 13 of chapter 2, it says they sat down beside him in silence for seven days in seven nights, which was the best counsel they ever gave. Because after that, they opened their mouth and inserted their feet. And they began to tell him all about what they thought was going on and what God's purpose was in this. And what they essentially told him was, 
God is judging you for hidden sin in your life and you need to repent. It's a great lesson here in how to console somebody who's going through intense suffering. Joseph Bailey lost three children to death, two while they were teenagers. He wrote a book I would highly recommend. I don't know if it's still in print. It's called The View from a Hearst. In it, he gives you this advice if you're consoling someone who's suffering great loss. He says, don't try to prove anything to a survivor. An arm around the shoulder, a firm grip of the hand, a kiss, these are the proofs grief needs, not logical reasoning. I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. Job didn't get any good comfort. His friends were pretentious, and his wife was hopeless. His friends pointed a finger at him and said, if you don't repent, you'll die. His wife threw up her hands and said, curse God and die. But I love Job's response in Job chapter 2 and verse 10. He said, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Are we going to only follow God if everything goes our way? Are we going to have fair weather faith that's only good if God is giving us good but doesn't receive the adversities of life? It's a great question. You know, many of us have the wrong goals in life. If we're really honest, our goals in life are twofold. Number one, we want to be comfortable. And number two, we want to be happy. And we will do most anything to reach those goals. God is telling us throughout Scripture that our goal should be to glorify Him no matter what that costs. And to trust that He's in control even when it appears that everything in your life is falling apart. To trust that He is in control even when you're bombarded with adversity and pain and loss. Job was a man with a rotting, decaying body, no children, ten fresh graves to visit, no possessions, and a nagging wife. What kept him going? How did he handle that? Well, fast forward with me to Job chapter 23 and verse 10. 
Job chapter 23 and verse 10. Job says, but he, God, knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. You see, Job saw what James is trying to get you and me to see, and that is that trials have a purpose. Trials produce character. You go into a trial as one kind of person, and you come out the other side as gold. You say, did Job come forth as gold? Well, let's see. Turn to the last chapter in the book of Job. Chapter 42. Mark this verse, verse 5. Job is now speaking, having come through his trial, and here's what he says. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Before I went through the trial, I had heard about God. Now I've gone through the trial, and I see God face to face. Is a trial valuable in your life? Ask Job. He knew God secondhand until he went through all the losses and pain and difficulty in his life, and now he knows God firsthand. He sees him face to face. When everything was going great, he knew about God. When the trials came, he knew God. That's maturity. That's character. That's the product. Don't you want that? Don't you want to be able to say, I used to hear about God and now I see Him. The only way to get there is through God's process of trials. And that's why James says we can rejoice when they come because we know there's a product. We know, like Job, we're going to come forth as gold. Now, in light of that, James gives us five steps for welcoming trials. We looked at the first three last time. We're going to look at the fourth one this morning, and we'll come to the fifth one next time. The first step is a joyful attitude. He says in verse 2, consider it all joy. Now, that doesn't mean that you walk around with a silly grin on your face all the time. People who do that scare me. Trials hurt. Trials are painful. Jesus went to the grave of one of his best friends, Lazarus, and what did he do? He wept. When Jesus was on the cross, he didn't have a silly grin on his face. He was a man of sorrows. He was suffering for you and me. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It was not fun. But underline the pain and underline the difficulty was a foundation of joy. We are to consider it all joy. Secondly, we're to have an understanding mind. 
The first word in verse 3 says, knowing. You will never be able to rejoice in trials until you know something about trials. You have to know there's a purpose. You have to know that those trials are being worked out by the Lord for your good and His glory. You have to know that He is using those trials to shape you and conform you. You have to see that those trials are a tool in the hand of God to accomplish His eternal purpose in your life. And if you don't know that, you'll never understand trials. A joyful attitude and understanding mind. Thirdly, a surrendered will. Notice the first word in verse 4. He said, or the second word, and let endurance have its perfect result. You have to let it happen in your life. Don't fight, don't fret, don't flee. Let God work in you. Have a surrendered will. Just as you trust the doctor when you go and he says, this is going to hurt a little bit, but the outcome will be good. When you go to the dentist and he says, this is going to hurt a little bit, and he pulls his drill out and you stay there because you know the outcome is going to be good. Just as the coach says, no pain, no gain, this is going to hurt a little bit, but you're going to be better as a result. Just as you trust the doctor and the dentist and the coach, you're to trust God. told you that I dread teaching James because I always get trials. I uh, woke up one morning this week with a crick in my neck. It's still that way. The whole left side of my neck is all tight and sore. And so my nurse wife said, you need to get in a hot tub. So I ran the hot water and went to get in it. Well, <laughs> it's painful to get in hot water. You try that, ooh, ooh, ouch, ah. You ever try that? Get in the water, you, you step in and go, it's, it's too hot, it's too hot. Ow, 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 ow. Oh. You know, that's, oh. That feels good, that's good. Oh. See, that's what God's doing with us. We don't like trials. They're uncomfortable, they're painful. They, they're not something we enjoy getting into. We don't like to get in hot water. But when we get in it, the result is good. And then fourthly, a believing heart. You say, well, Dan, I've got these trials in my life, and I really can't understand what God's doing. I can't see God's hand in it. These things make no sense to me. I can't figure them out. Well, then verses 5 to 8 is for you. I heard about a fellow who uh, went to lunch had a bigger lunch than usual with a friend, and then that afternoon he wasn't feeling very well. His stomach was upset, and he was going to ride the subway home. So uh, when the subway train showed up, it was full of people. So he just kind of backed into the subway, and the doors closed, and he was right there, and, and he started off on the subway, and everything was flashing by him 90 miles an hour, and he just kept getting sicker and sicker as he rode. And, and the subway came to the next stop and the doors open and there was a fellow standing on the landing waiting to get in and this guy just vomited all over him. Doors closed, train takes off. <laughs> Guy's standing there on the subway platform with another man's lunch all over him. 
And he turns to the fellow behind him and says, why me? You know, when trials happen, that's always our response. Why me? Why this? Why now? Well, notice what James says in verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. If you're going through a trial and you don't understand what God is doing in your life, James says it's okay to ask why. Just be sure you ask the right person. And who is that? God. And make sure you ask the right thing. He doesn't say, ask God to get out of the trial. That's what most of us do. God, take this away. Fix this. Get me out of here. I don't like hot water. James says, stay in the hot water. Stay under the trial. But ask God for wisdom. Ask God to help you understand what he's doing in your life. What's wisdom? My favorite definition of wisdom is that wisdom is seeing things from God's perspective. That's wisdom, right? Our problem is we see things from our our perspective and we don't understand them. Wisdom is being able to see things from God's perspective and understand them. If I had a beautiful painting up here, and I walked up to the painting, I put my nose against the painting, I would say, you know what? I see a lot of blur, see a lot of dots, I see a lot of colors, but I don't understand the concept of this painting at all. But if you had me step back a few paces to get a different perspective of the painting, I would say, ah, Now I see how all the dots and the colors fit together into a beautiful picture. When we're going through trials, we're too close to the situation. So all we see is the pain. All we see is the inconvenience. All we see is the difficulty. And we say, I don't understand how this fits into the bigger picture. And God says, i got to give you some wisdom, so i got to pull you back from that. i got to lift you up above your circumstances and let you see it from my perspective. And if we see things from God's perspective, guess what we say? Ah, I see how that fits into the big picture, the beautiful painting that God is making out of my life to give him glory. That's wisdom. Where do you get wisdom? You don't get it from watching Oprah. You don't get it from reading Cosmopolitan magazine. You don't get it because you subscribe to Newsweek. You get wisdom from God. James says, if you don't understand, ask him. And notice the promise in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Sometimes we pray and we're not sure if we're asking God's will. Sometimes we pray for something and we seem to get a no 
here's something you can pray for and know that every time you're going to get an answer from God and that answer is going to be yes. And that is when you ask Him for wisdom. In fact, James says, when you ask for wisdom, He gives it generously. Which means you're asking for wisdom and He actually gives you more than you're asking for. God is not hoarding His wisdom. He wants you to see from His perspective. He wants to shower you with wisdom. And not only that, but he also says, and I love this, God gives it without reproach. When God gives you wisdom, he doesn't rebuke you and belittle you and laugh at you. He doesn't say, are you back again? You were just here last week asking for wisdom. Why is it that you always have to get in difficulty before you ever look up? God doesn't do that. God gives generously, and God gives without reproach. But there's one condition. Notice verse 6. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What's the condition? You have to ask in faith without doubting. I heard about a fellow who went to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist said, are you indecisive? And the guy said, well, yes and no. Faith says yes. Unbelief says no. Doubting says yes and no. Doubting says, maybe, maybe not. And I love this in verse 7. James says, the doubter can't expect to receive anything from the Lord because he doesn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. He's like the waves of the sea. What happens to a wave in the sea? It's over here, then it's over here, and it's over here, and it's over here. It's never settled. He says, that's the doubter. This is a condition we have throughout Scripture. Jesus said, everything you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. He didn't say say everything you ask in prayer, doubting, you will receive. D.L. Moody once said, some men's prayers need to be cut short at both ends and set fire in the middle. God's not interested in the formality of your prayer. He's interested in the faith of your prayer. And in the midst of trials, it's often the time we get real with God and say, God, I really need you. And I need to see what your hand is doing in my life. Why is faith so essential when I ask God for wisdom? Well, because God doesn't just give us wisdom so we can think about it. God gives us wisdom so that we can do something about it. We don't ask God for wisdom and say, why don't you tell me what you're doing and I'll decide whether I want to stay with this program. No. God says, you've got to do it with faith. You can't be doubting. You've got to say yes to me now and then I'll show you what you're doing. Because God doesn't, you see, wisdom is not sitting around 
in a yoga position spouting proverbs. Wisdom is lived out in your life. That's why later in James 3.13, James says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. See, you show wisdom by living it out in your life. And then he says this in verse 17 of that chapter. He says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. How do I know someone's wise? It's not just because they say clever things. It's because they go through the fire of life and they exhibit the graces of God. And James says the person who doubts, the person who says maybe, maybe not, is a double-minded man. What's a double-minded man? That's a person who has the mind of Christ and a mind of his own. You ever been there? That's the person who's trying to do God's will and his own will at the same time. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress had a character named Mr. Facing Both Ways. That's the script. I'm facing God and I'm facing the world and I haven't really decided. I'm double-minded. We're all guilty of that. Sometimes we come on Sunday to church and we sing Onward Christian Soldiers and then on Monday we go AWOL. We're double-minded. What I'd like you to notice is that being double-minded is not a head problem. It's a heart problem. Because later in James, he says in chapter 4 and verse 8, purify your hearts, you double-minded. So you're double-minded. You have the mind of Christ and the mind of your own, but the problem is not in your mind. The problem is in your heart. And you need to purify your heart. How do you get single-minded? You let go of your mind, your way, your will, and you trust God totally in the situation. You see, I'll never see things from God's perspective if I'm determined to see it from my own perspective. If you're sitting around saying, well, this is the way I see life. This is the what I believe. You're never going to see God's perspective because you're double-minded. I'm told that the way they catch a monkey is that they hang a gourd in a tree, a gourd with a little opening and then a big fat bottom. Hang it in a tree, put some rice in it. The monkey smells the rice, climbs up the tree, puts his scrawny little hand through the opening and grabs the rice and makes a fist, and he can't get the fist out of the gourd. And he hangs on to the rice, screaming and yelping while his captors come and take him away. 
That's an apt description of the double-minded man. Holding on to my will when God's saying, I want to give you wisdom. I want to show you what I'm doing in your life. Let me ask you something today. If you got real honest, what are you holding on to in the midst of your trials? God's using that hot water, that fire, that trial to change you. What is it that you're so resistant about that you're hanging on to? Maybe it's your comfort. Maybe it's your plans. Maybe it's your happiness. Maybe it's your goal. Maybe it's just your will. You want to be in control. God's saying, let go. And you can be delivered, not only from your double-mindedness, but you can have the wisdom of God to see it from his perspective. George Whitfield said, all trials are for two ends, that we may be better acquainted with the Lord Jesus and better acquainted with our own hearts. That's so true. Sometimes the trial not only shows me more about the Lord, but it shows me more about myself, and a lot of it isn't pretty. That's why we said Peter, Peter describes it as gold. The, the dross rises to the top when the gold gets in the heat because the gold is heavier. And sometimes the things that come out of my life when I go through a trials are things that I thought I dealt with a long time ago, and I find they're still there, maybe in a different form. Cardinal Riccolu, who died in 1642, said this, A virtuous and well-disposed person is like good metal. The more he is fired, the more he's refined. The more he's opposed, the more he's approved. Wrongs may well try him and touch him, but they will never imprint on him any false stamp. A Puritan writer by the name of Joseph Church once said, Sufferings are but as little chips off the cross. Love that picture. I'm just doing a little suffering for Jesus' sake. It's like a little chip off his cross. And Thomas Watson said this, Whatever trouble in this life a child of God meets with, it is all the hell he will ever have. Wow. We read that again. Whatever trouble in this life a child of God meets with, it is all the hell he will ever have. And God in his infinite wisdom takes that little taste of hell and he uses it to refine your life and build steel into your character. He uses it like hot water to make us clean. So next time you get into hot water, and you will, sooner or later, next time you get into hot water, take your soap and rejoice. And rejoice. 
as you think about this message today and as we close with a song. Would you whisper a prayer today and ask the Lord for wisdom? But before you do, make sure that you're not doubting. Make sure you're saying yes to the Lord. Whatever you show me, I'm willing to do. Because my goal is no longer my comfort. My goal is no longer my happiness. My goal is your glory. So show me things from your perspective. Show me your wisdom. And I'm saying yes to you. Can you do that today? Let's stand as we close in worship to the Lord.